0: Hi, I'm Kirk Flagg. Welcome to the PEO InSync podcast. In each episode, we will take you behind the scenes to explore the ever changing PEO world. We will talk with the industry legends, the people whose hard work and creativity shape the PEO world of today. Also, we'll interview current industry leaders, those who are using their own creativity to grow and expand what it means to be a PEO. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Good morning. I'm fortunate enough today to have Bill Manis with us. One of the top people uh, in the PEO industry. He served on Napio and other industry boards throughout his career. He is um, currently president of a PEO, but, but let me uh, turn to you, Bill. How did you get in the PEO industry?
1: Well, I was uh, 25 years ago, I was in the radio industry in sales and management. And that was back when all of the consolidation of radio stations was going on. And people were buying and selling and trading radio stations right and left. And I was part of a group where uh, I was kind of, you know, odd man out on a lot of these deals going on. And, and I felt like, man, I'm I have no control over my destiny here. So I wanted to go to work for somebody where I could maybe do something new. I had a real real bad entrepreneurial spirit, but I wasn't an entrepreneur. I didn't have the guts to be one. And so I went to work for this staffing company because they wanted to create this thing called a PEO. They didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was, but when I looked into it, I realized, man, if I was a business, I think I'd want to use that. So that was kind of my foray. And then a year later after I joined the staffing company with very minimal growth, and, frankly, very minimal support from them to grow it. uh, We were acquired by Oasis uh, which was, you know, a national company that eventually sold to paychecks, you know, 18 years later. Um, and I worked for Oasis for three years and then left Oasis and started Syndio and in, in the summer of 2002. And that's when I became an entrepreneur at the ripe old age of 43 with college two years away for my kids and not knowing how the hell I was going to pay my bills. So not sure the timing was the greatest, but it was what it was.
0: Yes. I'm, Actually very familiar with that story since I was with Kelly Staff Leasing and Oasis acquired us when my children were just getting to be that high school age. I commend you for your bravery and not being an entrepreneur to becoming the, um, are you CEO or president of Cindio?
1: I'm both. I was originally the president. Now I act as the CEO and president, but uh, my role is now more in, on the CEO level. Uh, president to me is somebody that's actively involved in the business day to day, dealing with issues day to day, even doing some things in the business. and so I've really stepped back away from doing that and now just act as a, a thought leader and a, and a person that that has a management team that runs the business day to day and my direct reports and I discuss how we can do that better. And so that's the kind of the threshold you reach to when you get to be a CEO as you start working on the business instead of in the business. and so I've graduated to that now.
0: Congratulations. That's probably the best explanation I've heard of the difference (laughs) between president and CEO. Tell us a little bit about, Cindy, your footprint, where you're located, where you're calling from, um, type of clients you have.
1: Well, first, we're based in Wichita, Kansas. Um, Almost to a a person, uh, every one of our clients, there are about five clients that are not located in the state of Kansas, but there are one client or two clients who are 15 miles in Oklahoma south of the Kansas border, which puts them less than an hour from my office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I have uh, three or four clients in the Kansas City area. And then we have some people in rural Kansas uh spread out all over the, the, the market. But we're a Kansas-based company dealing with Kansas-based companies as most we can. We are not the typical PEO in that uh we are we believe we are an HR-centric company. Our job is to. Uh, take the burden of HR away from our clients and handle all of the things that go along with being an employer. Now, the PEO world says we'll, we'll handle payroll and benefits and work comp and HR and all these things. But from our perspective, because of the type of clients we deal with, uh, it's really important that we have strong HR. Uh, the average PEO client in the industry, according to APO figures, is about 21 employees. My average client has about 65 Um and so therefore, when you have larger clients, the, the HR needs are much greater and the ability to have more um, uh, people that, that frankly, live in that world is important for us. We also believe that's where our stickiness is with those clients because right. we become a, a part of their organization uh, on the ground floor and in involved in their operations daily. Uh, and, and that makes it easier for us to do our jobs.
0: You know, you raised a couple of really interesting points that I, I would like you to go uh, in depth with. One... 20, you said 21. I saw something recently said that was 17. So yeah, that's yeah. an even bigger distinction. How do you get clients that are average 63? I, I think there's a well, completely different sale. And as you sure, alluded sure. to a different, different, um, service approach.
1: It, it is, it is literally a. Um, I looked at it when I was early on in running my business. And I I was looking at how am I going to scale myself? How am I going to be efficient in delivering services? And what I found was, is that the 20 person groups demanded as much, if not more of my resources as the 60 person groups. Now I don't get three times the revenue that I would get with three clients versus one, but I get 2.8 times the revenue with a third, two thirds of the cost. Right. So I started doing math. I'm really good at math. I'm not a good accountant, but I'm really good at math. <laughs> and I figured, man, if I could average 65 employees per company, I can actually be more efficient on my end and deal better services to those type of clients. So we've really, that's who we target. We target 50 to 150. We end up with some 30s and some 20s. We also right. end up with some 300s and some 400s. And right. the reason for that is, is because we are really taking on the attitude of we're going to be your HR department and we're going to deal with all this stuff. And, and a lot of times, uh, the larger clients that we have that, you know, 200, 300, 400, they have an HR representative on site, but mm-hmm. it's their person in HR that needs to be leading the organization, not their person in HR doing paperwork. Uh, right. I'm very fond of saying when we talk to the larger groups, there are two kinds of HR people. If they are driven by doing data work, and de- their day is filled with nothingness of ad minutia, uh, they're not going to like us because we're going to replace them. If, on the other hand, they're an HR person that wants to be doing the things that are really good for HR, like employee development, recruiting, uh, retention, training, those are all great things that HR does, but they don't have the time to do it because they're doing ad minutia. Those right. people love us. And right. so the deal is, is what do you have? If you have somebody that deals in ad minutia and doesn't want to give it up, they need to go away because they can't do it as efficiently as I can. But if you have somebody that wants to do greater things with your organization and needs to be freed up, you're going to invest either way. You're going to invest in more personnel internally or you're going to invest in somebody like us. It's going to have a cost to it. And, in fact, it's really interesting. We got a client a couple of years ago who really, really likes us. And they had internal HR, but the internal HR director was going to retire. And they looked at it and, like, how are we going to replace this person? The two people they have in HR we really don't like. She kind of runs the whole thing, and they found us. And so we went out and did our whole presentation and we said, basically, when it's all said and done, if you replace these two and do that, it's going to be revenue neutral for what you're spending today. It's going to cost you the same amount you're spending today to come to us. And the guy said, so let me get this straight. I'm spending X amount of dollars to do it myself, or I can spend the same X amount of dollars and it's your problem now. I said, that's right. I said, (laughs) I'd rather it be your problem because frankly, if it's not a money issue, I don't want to deal with it. And it was, you know, it was a significant client with 360 employees and growing. And that's what they wanted to do was grow. So we really take the attitude in our sales process that we're going to talk to you about what you need to do for your organization and if we can help you or not. And a lot of times there are 50 and 60 and 70 person groups that really need help growing and sustaining and getting better. And they don't know how to do it. And we're an infinite resource for those people. Uh, and, And not only that, we can help them get to their goals faster. Than doing it themselves and trying to figure out how to do HR, which none of them know anything about anyway. So,
0: Right. It's actually, now that I, you know, I'm hearing you say it, the two make a lot of sense because if you're, let's say you're smaller, 30 or less, that HR administrator, office manager, maybe a spouse or a relative, and they're like the ad admonit- minutiae, um, but once you get larger, you actually do have people who are professionals, and they probably, right. in my experience, if you sell it to the HR people of that size, you're saying exactly as you said, we will do the I nines, we'll do all this, you know, keeping the files up for you that you don't want to do anyway. Right. Right. They want to do. They want to do the sexy stuff.
1: Yeah. As well, they should.
0: How do you find your HR people?
1: Well, we've garnered a reputation, at least in central Kansas, of being a kind of a best practices HR person and we pay well. And here, this came out of a, frankly, I lost two good HR people who were hired by not our clients to be their HR directors at 40 and 50% increases because they right. found. That my people knew more about HR than anybody else they were interviewing. And I'm like, you know, we got to get competitive with the market, or I'm just training everybody's next market HR director for the rest of the marketplace. I'm not going to do that. So we started getting a lot more resumes and we raised our pay grade. And we started saying, look, if you wanna, if you wanna do real HR, because my HR people don't deal with really ad minutiae. I have everybody right. else no, dealing with that. Somebody else is in HR. There. Yeah. But I have my people that are out on site that are HR are really about customer relations. They're about employee relations. They're about having tough conversations on behalf of our clients with the employees and any conflict management. And they're dealing with some pretty hard things that people just don't really like to deal with. It's easy for you and me to walk into somebody we don't know very well, or at least we know them well enough to know they're a client. But all of the individual parties, we don't know at all. And we need to have a tough conversation. Well, that's easy for us. We don't know. We don't work around them every day. So we can have the tough conversation and it is what it is. Right. It's a conversation. But when you work in that environment, I've said this many years ago, I said, I wish there was a PEO that I could hire <laughs> that, that would do my <laughs> employees, so I didn't have to have those conversations <laughs> with my own employees. But it, it's, that's where the advantage of a third-party resource comes in, is that we're we're objective, we're here to solve a problem, and that's really all we're going to do. And we de-escalate the emotional side of what all these things are for. And what we found in recruiting HR people is that they get a lot of a lot of diversity in clients, their day is different every single day. They get right. really challenged. We challenge them. We want them all to be SHRM CPs. We want them mm-hmm. all to be high level HR people that would be, they could go anywhere and get a job being an HR director. And frankly, right. if they went to work for a 200 person group that only wanted to have their own HR, they'd be bored to tears. No, and I they go, oh, by the way, they'd all go have to be doing ad again, because that's what's expected of that job. So you know, right. we, we, we do a really good job of identifying good candidates. And when we need them, we hire them and we do a lot of training internally. We hire a lot of young people. Uh, mm-hmm. We had a gal that worked for us for, I think she was with us for three years. She was a rock star. And then her and her husband decided to move to Atlanta because he was inheriting his family's business and needed to move to Atlanta. We couldn't let her work remotely back right. then. Well, now she's the VP of HR for a major medical company with 3,500 employees. And everybody that I talked to over there, because I've actually talked to their CEO, he goes, man, I don't know how you let Rebecca go. And I'm like, I didn't want to let her go, she, she yeah. had to go. But yeah, that's the kind of people we try to hire and, and then we take care of them. You're
0: gonna learn more as an HR person in one year in a PEO than you would in five years out on your own or with a single, because you have all these different clients. Do you actually have like an onsite HR people for a couple of clients? Or were you talking about your HR people going out there and visiting the no, clients?
1: In most of the kind, most cases, it's just we're going out and visiting. We do have a couple of clients that we do on-site work for on a consistent basis. Where uh, one client with you know 180 employees wanted one one wanted HR visibility three days a week for the mornings. So right. we have a team that actually rotates through that. So we've got coverages, and then we have a client that's in a small town about 45 minutes away that wanted HR representative a half a day a week. Uh, we charge for all this. I tell them how much it costs me to do it, and if you want that, we're glad to do it. But it's in addition to our normal services, and so here's what the rate is. If you want to pay that, it's probably well worth it for you. And they do the ones that want to don't pay for it, but it's not very often. It's not very often that we go on site on a permanent basis or on a consistent basis. It's usually as needed, but right. we will go as needed. We don't ever fire anybody over the phone because they did something bad. We go and investigate it and, and do the right thing, but it. it it, it requires that we be flexible enough to be able to do that. And right. our team's all on board with that. I mean, every one of our, uh, actually going, uh, this goes back to being uh, how we're remote workers now, pretty much all of us. Mm-hmm. We always resisted remote working simply because it, it's hard for you to learn our culture, being, not being around it every day. But we found that through the pandemic that we've communicated so clearly what our culture is and what our expectations are to fulfill our culture, that remote working is, is not an issue. And uh, we, we think it's now a benefit of our, of our business that we can recruit top level talent and allow them to work remotely to take care of our clients. Because frankly, to all of our clients, we're remote workers. So only the HR team is required to be available to go to the clients. I mean, we don't send payroll out. We don't send benefits out. We have a benefits representative that's in the HR team that all they do is benefits. The benefits is two sides. One is client and employee communication, and one is just administration. Well, we have the administrative Mm -hmm. team that works in the office, and they can work remotely. And then we have the communication team, which is part of HR, and that person can work remotely as well because they're going out to the clients all the time. So it's just our office has shrunk in the number of people that are there every day. But our services are not being sacrificed simply because mm-hmm. we've just now choose to do what we've always done, which is take care of our clients at our clients.
0: Before we get off um, your PEO, tell us a little bit. Are, are you ESAC certified? Are you a CPEO? If so, why? What difference does it make?
1: Well, I, I serve on the board of ESAC and I am the next uh, elected chairman of the organization for the next two terms. Uh, I've been an ESAC accredited PEO for about 11 years. Um, we are a certified PEO um, and we believe strongly in what that represents to the marketplace and also what it represents to our clients. We we do, uh, my, my reasons for doing it is simply because best practices, the people that are market leaders, the people that right. do the business the best do that stuff. And I don't do it for competitive reason because in Wichita, Kansas, I'm the only PEO. Uh, right. But I do it because it gives my clients the assurance that we're doing everything that they could get anywhere else right at home. And I also wanted it to it was almost a defense mechanism early on as I never wanted anybody to come to town to say, well, they're not Esac, or they're not certified, or they're not this or they're not that. And we are and you you know, you're dealing with a less than reputable PEO if, you, if they don't have these things. I was always sensitive to that. Now, I did that, you know, 11 years ago with Esac and when cert- certified I was one of the first ones certified they still haven't come to my market and tried to sell against me, but it's not because of that. It's really because I want to have a best practices organization. I think it builds value for our company. I believe that at some point in the the distant future, I don't know when that is, that I'm going to have to have some kind of an event where I transition my company on. And the only way to do that successfully is to have a best practices organization that everybody wants. And if you can do that, then A, there's value in it. And B, they'll take care of what you've taken care of. Because what right. you've built is what they want to have, and uh, my my uh, HR director is redoing our, our our internal branding, and she's taking this on as a task. She said, "Bill, I'd like to I'd like to know what your vision is. We know what our mission is, but what's your vision?" I said, "Well, it's very simple, and it will always be what I've wanted to be, and and that that vision is is that we want to be the PEO and the HR outsourcing provider that all other people are judged." against are you as good as syndio that's who we that's my vision so will we ever get there it's a, it's a constant pursuit of trying to be the best but one thing i'm really proud of we two years ago we tested uh we we um decided to do uh, a imp- client survey to see what they thought of us and this survey is called a net promoter score a lot of people in the right. industry no, know what that very promoter familiar score is. yeah um and, and the first time I was really hesitant because I'm, you know, I've always bragged about how good a service company we are, but, you know, I never really had anything to prove it. And the first year we had above average returns on the, the surveys and we scored an 82.5, which That's is amazing. phenomenal. Yeah.
0: But I had I two
1: clients. One gave us a six and one gave us a two. The six oh apologized immediately, not realizing what he was doing, saying, Well, I didn't, I don't really deal with it, but everybody loves you guys. Then why would you give us, that's like a, give us a <laughs> He goes, Yeah, that's probably not a good score. I'll, I'll do better next time. The two, I said, You know, I could take you from a six to an eight and from an eight to a 10, but I can't take you anywhere with a two. You need to go find somebody else. And we fired yeah. the client. But this year we did the survey and we scored a 93.5. That's great. I'm so proud of the fact that these are what our clients are saying about us. This is not what we say, but my challenge to my team is I looked at the results and then I looked at and realized that we had a 50% return on the survey, which is actually very, very high. Mm -hmm. I thought it's, well, that's half my clients didn't tell us how they feel. I want to to know how they feel about us too. Well, I looked at the list of clients that didn't respond and they would all give us nines or tens, but that's not the point. The point is they didn't take the time to respond to the survey and I wanted them to know it was important to me. And it's important to me because I can't claim to be the best service standard company out there if I can't prove it. And proven it is my net promoter score. So we will always strive for 100%. We will probably never get it. I don't know how you really improve 93 and a half. That's just going to be really damn difficult to keep because there's always something that's going to, some event's going to lower your score with somebody. But at the end of the day, we work really, really hard to have a happy client. And the only way I can do that is to have happy employees. So I do everything I can to give my employees all the things they need to take care of our clients.
0: First of all, congratulations on the net promoter score. I think that's very important. You you need to take care of your employees. And again, the process improvement, the mission, vision, value statements that flow down into the job descriptions. How does your job meet with the values of the company or or the vision of the company? How do you make that happen? So
1: You know, let me say this as a CEO, my job is to take care of my employees and they require a lot less work to take care of than taking care of our clients. So for me, it's the one luxury that I do have now is a little more time than I used to have. I used to miss things uh, and I don't mean personally, but I mean, miss things in the business because I was too much in the weeds. And now I see things through all the communications we have where I'm not involved with them at all but I see how we're reacting. I see how we're doing something. And sometimes my insights are more from a global standpoint than a specific. Uh, and, and I, you know, I've obviously I'm on the board of Napio. Uh, this will be my last year on the board, actually. Uh, I'm incoming chairman of ESAC. Uh, I serve on the board of, uh, of another charity here in Kansas, the Kansas Golf Foundation. Uh, I, I'm, I'm involved as much as I want to be in doing the things industry-wise. Uh, But I'm always, always willing to talk to people that want to learn how to be better uh, and to share what little wisdom I have. Because, frankly, it's not rocket scientists, not rocket science. I have the same talk with every new employee, and I have it personally with every new employee we get. And I've done it for years. And it's basically to outline who we are and why we come to work every day. And it's very simple. Uh, We have three rules at CindiO. These are the nuggets of wisdom your audience is going to like. The first rule is, is that w- what we do for our clients is a problem for him, for them. So come to work every, every day, ready to solve problems. Cause that's what we do. Right. And rule number two is, is if you ever sweep a problem under the rug, you get one warning because when you sweep problems under the rug, they get big and expensive fast. And rule right. number three is if the words, that's not my job ever escape your lips. You can't work it. <laughs> um, and the reason is, is because it's because of an attitude. I actually heard that from one of my people. That's why it got added. I only had two rules at the beginning. Uh, it got added because I walked by a cubicle of a payroll person. And I heard those words come out of her mouth. A client had called in with a problem. And she said, well, that's, that's not my job. And, and I remember stopping thinking, boy, if I'm the client calling in, I pay these guys to take care of my problems. What do you mean it's not your job? What i changed to it is, is that what I want you to say is, is not that's not my job say let me get you some help because now they know you're working for them now they know the attitude is you're here to serve us and to take care of us so I make that very crystal clear from the very beginning this is who we are and this is what we do every day and this is the standard by which we will all live if you can't you if you can't continue that standard you can't work here because it's it's who we are and if you can't do it because you don't want to or you're incapable either way you're not going to work for us for long however if you find fulfillment in taking care of others, the people around you and your clients, you'll love this place because we're all committed yeah. to that. And when somebody needs help with a ball that's getting too too many balls going at once, there's people around that are willing to help you. And they'll take the load off of you to help you get through it. And and, and the expectation is, is we all do that for each other. That culture is conscious, but it's actually also some kind of fun because everybody buys into it. And those yes. that don't, don't last. So we're okay with that.
0: And culture is so important for a PEO. I mean, it's better to be yeah. Nordstrom with your quality service or the four seasons or Cindio. I'll put you all three in the, the customer service go. category, uh, than it is to be someone who's just you know there to make the money, whether that's a payroll right. person or you know, the CEO of a, a PEO startup. Gosh, I could go on and on about this because I, you know, I find what you're doing so interesting and so fascinating. Um, I'm sure people will be disappointed that you're just in Kansas, but I understand, especially from a legal standpoint, why you might want to be in Kansas and might never want to you know, have any clients in California. Let's talk about the future of the PEO industry and or what challenges do you see facing the PEO industry in the future?
1: I think the biggest challenge for the PEO industry is stepping up our game. To, to be more to, to grow to more towards what I try to do which is to service larger clients uh, we've spent so much time and energy just getting clients and right. and I will tell you that there is a, a, a good amount of profit in the um, in this smaller end of that spectrum because you can charge a lot higher rate per employee it's also a lot more work and frankly it's a lot less risk to Spread your revenue out a bunch, a whole bunch of clients than a few. But I think as a quality organization, we're finding now that that even smaller organizations are demanding technology that, right. that works for them. Um, the next generation of business owners that are happening right now are not my age. Uh, they're not your age. They're our kids' no. age, and right. their demands no, right. of what they what they want in a business are completely different than what our contemporaries wanted and what our parents wanted. And we have to be adept at that. And we're seeing a lot of competitors in the marketplace that are technology driven. It's still a service business. So you got to be able to embrace your technology to take care of it. And and frankly, we're taking care of human beings as best we can. Uh, So it's still a human business, but we have to embrace technology to the highest level that we can in order to take care of the stuff that people have just expected to be taken care of online or, you know, with their phones or their iPads or whatever. So we have to be ready to embrace that to move forward. I think we also have to be ready to embrace the fact that there's going to be a lot of changes in the next five years, seven years, 10 years in PEO ownerships because of the aging guys like me that are at the end of our Mm -hmm. careers. And that's going to lend itself to some consolidation. It's a very expensive business to get into. Uh, it is also a very capital intensive business to stay in. Um, and, and it's getting harder and harder for the mom and pops, like I was 20 years ago to jump into this deal with two investors and less than $400,000 and make it. That's kind of not how you're seeing it work today. Most of the people are walking in with, you know, millions of dollars in their pocketbook to be able to go secure lots of different things that they need to have going forward. And they're doing it with big money behind them. Yes. And that's going to limit the competition, or limit the growth, obviously, until we get more people in it. Um, and I just I think from a technology and, and, and ownership kind of groundswell up that we're probably going to see a dramatic increase in the usage of PEOs in the next five to 10 years. And the reason for that is, just the next generation of business owners that are out there running factories and doing whatever else they're doing are gonna find the need that that the place to get HR is from an HR outsourcing company, not doing it yourself.
0: Well, Bill, I'm looking at my timer here and I can't believe it, but this will be the longest conversation I've had with anyone, but it's been so interesting, so fascinating.
1: Well, thank you. And if you find that we've got more questions that we can cover in another one, happy to do it. Okay, thank you very much. Excellent. Okay, have a great day.